Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is going to take some of you by surprise this morning, but I'm not an expert in Chinese gangsters. Maybe you thought I was, but I'm not. You're like, why in the world is Pastor Sean bringing up Chinese gangsters? Well, I did some research this past week, and I wanted to find out what were the top ransom prices paid for kidnapping in recent history. And so I discovered it centers around a Chinese gangster. And so two top dollar amounts center around a notorious Chinese gangster. And his name is called the Big Spender. The Big Spender. So in 1996, Victor Lee, the son of a Hong Kong businessman, was kidnapped by Big Spender. Now, do you want to know what the ransom price was to get this guy back? $134 million dollars. That was the ransom price. Then, a year later, in 1997, a man named Walter Kwok, he was the son of one of China's wealthiest businessmen, was also kidnapped by the big spender. What was the ransom price this time? It was $77 million. Now, ransom, kidnap. When you hear the word ransom, we often automatically think of kidnappers. What's the ransom price? What's this whole business of, of getting kidnapped and paying the ransom? However, the word ransom is a wonderful biblical word, especially when we think about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Last week, we started chapter 2, and we learned the importance of prayer. Praying for all kinds of people, and especially our leaders those who are in authority over us. And if you remember from last week, if you were here, we prayed for two big things at the end of the worship service, for regeneration on an individual level, that that people would be saved, would be regenerated. And then we prayed for revival on a national level. And so we want to see God bring about this wonderful Reformation revival through prayer. So we want to continue to be a house of prayer. And so we're going to continue reading this morning, and I want to give you a, a Surgeon General's warning. I told you this week and the next two weeks would be controversial. So what I'm going to preach this morning, you don't necessarily have to agree with your pastor, but I'm going to do my best to explain the text the best way I understand it, and I'm going to challenge your thinking this morning. So some of you may have come in here and you're not ready to be challenged. You need to put your thinking caps on this morning because I'm going to be asking you some, some questions to think about. So let's read together. We're going to start back up in verse 1 because it all flows together. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So I want you to put on your theological thinking caps this morning. And sometimes you kind of just read the Bible and gloss over some truths, but I want us to go deeply into this passage of Scripture and ask some questions. Actually, I want to ask four questions this morning. Four critical questions about this passage of Scripture, and right out of the chute is the, probably the most controversial one. And here's the first question. Who is the all God wills to be saved? Now, there are two ways you can take the word all in the Bible. You can take it one way as all without exception, which means every single person who's ever lived, who will live and is living now, every single person without exception. That's one way you can take the word all. There's another way in which the Bible uses the word all. It can mean all without exception. That is all types or classes or kinds of people. Men, women, boys, girls, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, those in high positions of authority, those normal people like us. So here's the question. Which one do we take when it comes to Jesus' or God's desire for all people to be saved? Which one do we take? Do we take the first one or do we take the second one? And let me give you the answer. Context, context, context will help you understand how we are to take the word all. Paul used the word all up in verses 1 and 2. He told us to pray for all kinds of people. And he qualifies it by talking about praying for kings and those in authority. So Paul has already told us that the word all is all without distinction. All kinds of people. So as we go through this passage of Scripture and we get to, chapter, we get to verses 4 and we get to verses 5, is Paul going to switch the meaning of all on us or is he going to keep it the same? So which all do we take? I think the best way to interpret it is to take all here, that God desires all to be saved, to take it as all without exception. No, all without distinction. Which one is it? Well, let me, let, me, let me show you. There are other places in the Bible where the word all doesn't mean every single or all without exception. So let me give you some examples of other places in the Bible where all means all without distinction. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, did Jesus go throughout every single village and did he heal every single affliction and every single disease? Or is Matthew basically saying, generally, Jesus went to a large area, to a lot of different villages. He didn't go to every single one of them, but he went to a lot of the villages. All right, Acts 10, 12. This is when the sheet comes down and Peter has his dream of all the animals. And so in, in Acts 10, 12, in it, in the sheet, were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. 
Now, does this mean that Peter saw every single genus and species of every single animal was in the sheet? Or was it a representative of all kinds of animals? All without distinction, all kinds, but not every single animal. And then when Paul is being arrested, in Acts 21, 28, the the men that arrested him, the Jewish leaders cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Paul was teaching everyone everywhere. Does that mean that Paul was teaching every single person everywhere? Uh, That's humanly impossible for Paul to do. So sometimes when the Bible uses the term all, it can mean a large number, a representative number, all kinds or classes or types of people. So we have to ask the question, when the Bible here says in verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, what all do we take? Now let's understand the word desires. God desires all people to be saved. So what does that word desire mean in the original language? It means God wills. Not merely that God wishes or God has a desire, but it actually means a determinative purpose. You could translate it this way. God determinately purposes all people to be saved. Now, there are two camps or ways to interpret or understand this passage of Scripture. Here's the first. God wills all people without exception. Every single person who's ever lived, God desires for them and wills for them to be saved. That's the first way you can take it. The second, which I think is actually the more accurate way to take it, is that God wills for all kinds of people to be saved. All people without distinction. He desires men, women, boys, girls, wealthy, poor, Jew, Gentile, slaves, free, kings, those with an authority. Now, what's the problem if you take the first interpretation? I want you to think with me. If God wills, If God purposely determines for every single person to be saved, you run into some theological problems and some logical problems. Because what do we know from experience? Is everybody saved? No. So God desires or God purposes or God's wills something to happen that doesn't happen. God desires something that doesn't happen. God wills something to occur that does not, in fact, occur. So human free will frustrates God's plan to save all people because we know not all people are saved. And so let's ask a second question, a follow-up question. When God ordains or wills or purposes for something to happen, will that happen? If God has a sovereign plan for something to happen, can anything frustrate or stop God from accomplishing his purpose? So let's just ask the question, if God wills for all people to be saved and God's plan cannot be thwarted because if God sovereignly determines that something's going to happen and it's going to happen, then the logical conclusion is this, every single person will be saved. 
That's called universalism. This is a view that there is no such thing as hell and that everybody ends up going to heaven. Now, we know from the Bible that is not true. So, if God wills or purposes or determines for something to happen, will it happen? And you have to say the Bible answers that yes. Let me just give you a few verses that show that God has a sovereign purpose, and when God purposes for something to happen, it will happen. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God's counsel stands forever. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring, not predicting, but declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's pretty clear. God's going to accomplish all of his purpose. If God wills for something to happen, he's going to accomplish it. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, stopped, stymied, messed with, frustrated. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? If you take view number one, that God desires or wills for every single person to be saved, and yet not every single person is saved, you have a theological problem because God ordains or purposes something to happen that in fact doesn't happen. Something has frustrated God's will from happening. Now the answer that people will give is that human freedom has frustrated God's plan. God gives people libertarian free will, and they've chosen not to accept Jesus, and so that is what has frustrated God's plan, because God has a desire, God has a plan, and this is what he wants to do, but he can't accomplish it because human free will stops all people from being saved. So God wills something to happen that does not in fact happen because we know from history, we know from experience, and most importantly, we know from the Bible, not everybody is saved. So you need to make a decision from the context, from the theology, from an understanding of God's sovereignty. How are you going to take the all? If God desires all people to be saved, do you take it as all people, every single person that ever lived, or do you take it the way the context has been flowing, all kinds of people? Kings, rulers, slaves, free, men, women, boys, girls. So that's the first question. You've got to make that choice. I think contextually, based upon how Paul has used the word all previously, and then theologically, how God's sovereignty works in relation to the rest of the Bible's teaching, I think we have to take it as all types or all kinds of people, all classes. All right, the next question is easier. Question number two. How are people saved? If God wills all people to be saved, the answer can't be, well, everybody's eventually going to be saved. 
Again, that's universalism. That's the idea there's no hell. That can't be the answer. What is the answer? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 4. God desires or God wills all people to be saved and, what's the rest of the verse say? To come to a knowledge of the truth. So how is a person saved? They've got to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, the truth about what? They've got to come to an acute awareness of their own sin before a holy God. They've got to understand a knowledge of the truth of who God is as holy, who Jesus is. They've got to understand the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. They've got to understand their own sin. They've got to understand the need to repent. They've got to understand that they can't earn their salvation by good works. They've got to come to a knowledge of the truth about who they are before a holy God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Some really stark definitions of what it means to be without Christ. What an unsaved person is. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, spiritually dead, children of wrath, enslaved to sin. So ultimately, what does a sinner need to do? A sinner needs to come to the understanding that they stand condemned before a holy God and they need a mediator. They need a mediator. They need someone to pay the ransom price to release them from that bondage to sin. So a way a person is saved is they come to a knowledge of the truth that they are a sinner separated from a holy God and they need one mediator, Jesus, and his ransom on the cross to save them from their sins. Which leads us to the third question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the one mediator? And ransom for all. We got that all language again. A ransom for all. What does it mean for him to be the one mediator? It's important to understand what, the, what these words mean. Mediator and ransom. Well, Paul begins with an evident truth. He, he quotes back from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. There is one God. This is the, the credo of ancient Israel. It's called the Shema. The first word in the, in the Hebrew language there is, is hear, O Israel, the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, why does Paul start with there's one God? Because what do sinners need to know about this one God? This one God is holy. This one God is righteous. He's the one true living God. And we stand condemned before Almighty God. We have failed to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, our soul, our soul, and our mind. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here love the Lord perfectly all the time, 100% perfection, perpetually, with all your whole, your whole heart, soul, and mind and strength? Anybody done that? No, we've not. So we stand condemned before this one living and true God. But notice what Paul says there in verse 5. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. What does the word mediator mean? One who stands in the gap. A go-between. An advocate, one who bridges the gap. So I want you to picture in your mind the Grand Canyon. 
Everybody got the Grand Canyon picture in mind, a big hole in the ground. Whether you've been there or not, you've probably seen pictures of it. Okay, so on one side of the Grand Canyon stands a holy and righteous God as your judge. On the other side of the Grand Canyon, you're there. And there's no way you can get to God. Even if you tried to jump, you're not going to make it across that. The, the, gas, the, the chasm is too wide. It's too wide of a gap. You cannot earn or get yourself to God. The gap's too wide because of your sin. You need a bridge. You need a mediator. You need a go-between to connect you and God. And Paul says that one mediator is Jesus Christ. And, and notice why it says he's the one mediator. Not one of many mediators. One mediator. Meaning Jesus is the only way to God. Not a good way, not one of many ways, but the only way. And I'm quoting Jesus here. I'm not saying anything that Jesus himself hasn't said. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You only get to the Father through Jesus as your one mediator. Now what's Jesus doing right now as our one mediator? Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 8, 33-34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's praying for us. He's representing us. He's our advocate right now before the Father in heaven. Pastor Dustin read this earlier during our time of confession. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children... I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator, a go-between, a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. He's the one mediator between God and man. And notice that Paul says, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul call him the man? Well, if we need a mediator to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful humans, an animal could not be a mediator. An animal can't represent us. Now, it was a type and shadow in the Old Testament. They would use animal sacrifices, ultimately pointing forward to Jesus. But we are humans. We can't have animals represent us. In the same way, angels can't represent us. We need a man to represent us. But it can't just be an ordinary man, a sinful man. It's got to be a man who is fully God and fully man at the same time. See, Jesus is fully God and fully man. As fully man, he's the only one that could represent humans. But he had to be fully God to take the eternal wrath and punishment and divine justice that came upon him. He had to be the sinless son of God. So he is the one mediator, the only way of salvation. But notice what verse 5 says. What did this one mediator do? He gave himself, he voluntarily gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom. Now, Paul here says a ransom for all. Mark's gospel, Mark 10, 45, says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So which is it, Bible? Is it a ransom for all, or is it a ransom for many? 
Well, how do we take all earlier? A large group, all without distinction. So there's no contradiction here when Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom for many, if you take many to mean all kinds of people, not every single person who ever lived. Now, what does the word ransom mean? It's important to understand ransom. Ransom means to pay a price by substitutionary atonement to get someone out of slavery. It's a, it's a ransom price. It's, a, it's paying the price by substituting, taking the punishment. <clears throat> New Testament scholar Leon Morris says this, the word means a substitute ransom. Instead of our death, there's his death. Instead of our slavery, there is his blood. So ransom means substitutionary atonement. It means that Jesus literally died in the place of sinners. He substituted himself. He was there taking the punishment that we deserved. So let's ask a question. What were we delivered from? What did Jesus buy us out of? From what has Jesus ransomed us? There's a lot of things the Bible teaches, but let's just talk about a few of those. Jesus purchased us from being under sin. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, notice how there's that all language, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All of us are under sin. We're under the power and penalty of sin, and Jesus has released us from being under that power. Jesus also purchased us from the penalty of the law. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us. And by the way, when you see the word redeem and you see the word ransom, they're from the same Greek words that that work together. So ransomed, redeemed, redemption, they're all from the same family of words. So they they mean basically the same thing. So when you see ransom, when you see redeem, when you see redemption, it's all talking about the same thing. Christ redeemed us or ransomed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus purchased us from the bondage of the power and fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14-15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He conquered the enemy of the devil. And he also purchased us out of the domain of darkness. Colossians 1, 13-14. He's delivered us. He's rescued us. From where? From the domain of darkness. And He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. There's that word again. Redemption, ransom, the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, we've been freed from sin, death, hell, and the devil. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed. From what? from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. You weren't bought with perishable things like silver or gold. What were you bought with? What were you purchased with? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We've been purchased to eternal life, to forgiveness of sins, to adoption as children. But ultimately, if you think about it, we've been ransomed to God himself. We've been reconciled to God himself. Now let's ask the very difficult question. You knew we'd get to it. What does the word all there mean? 
God desires all people to be saved. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. What does it mean that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all? Let me ask you this question. Is Jesus a mediator for every single person who ever lived? Let me ask it a deeper way. Is Jesus a mediator for those in hell right now that have never trusted in him? When Paul says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, does he mean, number one, the first view, that Jesus died in the place of every single person who ever lived, is living now, and will live? Is that what the word all means? Or does it mean the second one, Jesus died as a ransom for all kinds, types, classes of people, all without distinction? Got to answer that question. Contextually, how the word all has been used theologically based upon God's sovereignty, but also an understanding of what the word ransom means. So let me ask it this way. Let me ask it a different way. Is the atonement of Christ definite or particular for those it was intended to save? In other words, let me say it this way. Did Jesus specifically die for his chosen people on the cross and only those people? Let's ask the word. Let's ask the question. What is a substitutionary atonement? What is a ransom? What did Jesus actually accomplish when he did, in fact, die on the cross? Did Jesus die in the place of particular people, or did he merely make salvation possible? You've got two choices. Either Jesus literally died in the place of specific people, bearing those people's wrath, truly taking their punishment, paying for their sins, or Jesus died to make salvation possible, and you activate the atonement by you choosing Jesus one day. And here's a hypothetical Think about it this way. If Jesus only died to make salvation possible, there could be a possibility that nobody would ever be saved. Because if it was left up to human free will, there could be a hypothetical reality in some world that nobody would ever trust Jesus for salvation if it was left up to us. So Jesus never died in particular place of anybody. He just made it possible. So let's just ask the question, was Jesus' death on the cross a potential hypothetical reality or was it literal and actual? So let's just ask it this way. Did Jesus literally, actually, or potentially propitiate God's wrath? Did Jesus actually or potentially redeem us out of spiritual slavery? Did Jesus actually or just potentially bear the curse of sin? Did Jesus actually or potentially reconcile us to the Father? In other words, let's ask the question, was it a finished work? Did it actually and effectively bring us salvation? Or did it just make a salvation possible for one day whoever would believe? The question you've got to ask is, was the ransom that Jesus made on the cross actual, effectual, operative? In other words, let me, add, let me just put it this way. The simplest way I can put it. Did Jesus get what he paid for? Did Jesus get what he paid for? And if he literally paid for those that he died for, he's going to get them. 
It's not going to be potential. It's not going to be hypothetical. Jesus got what he paid for. So if Jesus literally paid for your sins and he literally took God's wrath, then you will be saved. Because can these truths be said of every single person who's ever lived? Can every person say their sins have been paid for? Okay, let me ask you a question. Why are people suffering in hell right now if their sins have been paid for? We call that double jeopardy. Their sins were paid for on the cross. The wrath was appeased on the cross. They were reconciled to the Father on the cross. Jesus paid for them on the cross. It was an actual atonement on the cross, but yet they're suffering in hell, suffering the sins that were supposedly paid for by Jesus on the cross. Why are they suffering? It's a double jeopardy. Jesus already purchased their salvation, but they're suffering in hell. Jesus already paid for their sins, but they're suffering in hell. So can we say that Jesus is the one mediator who died as a ransom for those that are in hell? We cannot say that because if you say that Jesus is a ransom for those in hell, they are suffering in hell for sins that Jesus already paid for. But then you say, well, the reason they, they're in hell is because they didn't believe in Jesus. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is unbelief a sin? Is unbelief a sin? Yes. Then there's one sin for which Jesus didn't pay for. He paid for all the sins except for unbelief. That's the one sin he didn't pay for. So if you're in hell suffering the wrath of God, that wrath of God was already satisfied by Jesus on the cross. You're suffering double jeopardy. And if you say it was because it was my unbelief, I didn't believe in Jesus, then you're saying there's one sin for which Jesus didn't die. He died for all the sins, but he didn't die for your unbelief. You're left with a dilemma. See, unless you believe that everybody is eventually going to be saved, universalism, you limit the atonement. I don't like to use the word limited atonement, but everybody limits the atonement in some way. So here's one way you can limit the atonement. If you believe that Jesus died for every single person who ever lived, then you are limiting the effectiveness of the cross because not everybody's saved. If, if the cross was meant to save every single person and yet not every single person saved, you've limited its effectiveness. You've limited its power. You've left it up to human free will to somehow activate the cross upon believing. You've only made salvation possible for those. You've, you've, you've limited its power. In the other view, if you believe that Jesus only died for the elect, you've basically limited its intent. It was only intended to save those for whom God intended it for it to save, and that would be those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Now think about the Grand Canyon imagery I gave you earlier. If you believe that Jesus is just a potential Savior that makes salvation possible, what you've got is you've got a very wide bridge that goes halfway across the canyon. Get you halfway across, but the rest of the way, you've got to get yourself across by believing. In the other view, where Jesus only died for the elect, it's a very narrow bridge, but it goes all the way across. It 
actually saves you and gets you there without anything that you have to do to somehow make it actual in your life. You don't have to activate it. You don't have to make it effective. It is effective when Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't potential. It wasn't hypothetical. It was an actual, literal atonement made for definite people in particular. Now, we sang the song earlier, Is He Worthy? And that comes from Revelation 5.9. And I want you to read this verse very carefully. They sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom, there's the word, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, notice what it says there. Does this verse say that Jesus ransomed every single person from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people? No, he said he ransomed people from or out of every nation, tribe, language, and people. In other words, God has his elect people in all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all places. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for those people, and those people will come in faith. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes it in his sermon, The Death of Christ. He says this, They believe that the damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. That in the case of multitudes, Christ died in vain, for he died for them all, and yet so ineffective was his dying for them that though he died for them, they are in hell afterwards. But I would rather believe a limited atonement that is effective for all men for whom it was intended rather than a universal atonement that is not effective for anybody unless the free will of man makes it effective only upon believing. Now, this is a difficult pill to swallow, and this is where you've got to come to grips with both views. I will not let you stand in the middle. Pick a view. You've got to, you've got to come to grips with this. And it's not going to offend me if you come to a different group view, but you've got to understand how this works. So was Jesus' atonement, was it a hypothetical potential atonement that did not die for anybody in particular, but only made salvation possible in the sense that he wants all people to be saved and not all people are saved, and so therefore God's plan is not accomplished and it's thwarted by human free will? Or do you believe that it was a particular atonement that actually paid for God's people, it gets us all the way to salvation, and it's a definite atonement? God's will is accomplished and not thwarted. So you've got to be the decider of which view you're going to take. But you've got to pick a view. There's no middle ground. Now, let's ask the fourth question. This has all been deeply theological. Let's ask the, let's ask the, where the rubber meets the road. Okay, here's the final question. How does this apply to the way we pray and share the gospel? Because notice what Paul says. This isn't, this isn't the context of prayer. Remember last week we talked about prayer? Go back up to verse 2. For kings and who are all in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, so should this limit who we pray for? Absolutely not. Should this limit who we share the gospel with? Absolutely not. We should share the gospel with every single person because here's what I don't know. Here's what you don't know. You don't know the identity of the elect. Charles Spurgeon said, well, if he knew that 
if, it would be very nice in the streets of London if God painted a white stripe down the back of people that were elect. He would only go up pulling up coattails and he would share the gospel only with people with a white stripe on their back. Make evangelism easier. I know they're going to get saved. You don't know. Every single person on planet Earth that you come into contact with is a potential candidate for salvation. So you share the gospel with every single person you meet. That's why we go on mission trips to remote villages in South Asia sharing the gospel in dangerous places because we don't know whom God has chosen. We're responsible to go share the gospel with them and to go pray for them. But here's what we do know. God ordains both the ends and the means. Have you thought about this? God ordains your prayers and your evangelism as the means to bring about the salvation of his people. Well, if God's got it all figured out, I don't need to pray for anybody. God's got it all figured out, I don't need to share the gospel. God's got it all figured out, I don't need to give my tithes and offerings. God's got it all figured out, I don't need to use my spiritual gifts. You see how that logic can take you to some bad places? Does God have it all figured out? Yes. Does that get us off the hook for prayer and evangelism? No. So let me give you three responses to this truth about Jesus being our one mediator and a ransom. First, we should always be humble, not prideful or elitist. The moment you begin to think that you're all that because God chose you is the moment you go down a bad path. God was under no obligation to save any of us. And the moment we think we're all that and we become elite and we become prideful is the moment that you need to pray for God to crush that pride because he was under no obligation to save you. He saved you because he wanted to save you and he did it because he's a God of love and you have no right to earn it or to deserve it and so we must be humble. We must be a humble people. Never prideful. Never elitist. Never the chosen frozen to think, oh, we've got it all figured out and God's chosen us and so therefore we're these great people. No, as a matter of fact, we're not all that great. You know your heart. I know my heart and sometimes I wake up at night and wonder why in the world would God ever save me because I know what I've done. And you know what you've done. Second, this truth should give us confidence in our prayer and evangelism. Now, why would it give us confidence? If you believe in the doctrine of election, and you believe in the doctrine that the Holy Spirit draws those whom God has chosen, it gives you great confidence because you don't have to arm twist. You don't have to cajole. You don't have to talk people into stuff. You don't have to try gimmicks because John 6.37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out. If someone has been given by the Father before the foundation of the world to the Son, when the gospel's presented in time, that person will come. That person will come to faith. If they've been given to Jesus by the Father, they will come. And you might have the privilege of being the one that shares the gospel when they do come. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, so there are sheep that Jesus lays down his life for. And then later on in that passage, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. So your job is to share the gospel with people so that the sheep can hear the voice of the shepherd. And when the sheep, those who've been chosen, hear the voice of the shepherd, they're going to follow. You don't have to arm twist You don't have to convince. You simply show them who the shepherd is and give them the gospel, and you go with confidence that God will do his work. And here's the third. We should urgently pray for 
and share the gospel with lost people. It's never an excuse for laziness. We need to be urgent about this. Now, why do we need to be urgent about this? Well, we need to be urgent about this because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But regardless of what view you hold to, there should be an urgency. Because people are going to hell, our world is getting crazier, and God has ordained you and me as the ones to pray and share the gospel with lost people. He's not left it up to other people. He's left it up to us. We need to have an urgency. So you may be sitting there and wondering to yourself, some of you may be wondering this, what if I'm not one of the all that Jesus died for? What if I'm not one of the chosen? What if, what if I'm not one of the elect? What if I've not been predestined? I don't know now. Sean, you've made me scared. What if, what if I'm not the one that Jesus died for? Well, let me stop and ask you some questions. Do you know you're a sinner? Have you come to the knowledge of the truth that you need Jesus? Have you felt the weight of your sin? And let me ask you another question. Do you want to be saved? Do you want Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus right now? Are you clinging to Jesus? Are you believing in Jesus? Do you want Jesus? If so, the Holy Spirit has put that desire in you, and that's evidence that you are one of the elect. If you want Jesus, and you've come to Jesus, and you've believed in Jesus, and you've placed your whole, your whole trust in Jesus, let me, have, let me give you great news. You're one of the elect. You wouldn't have done that if you weren't. That desire comes from the Holy Spirit. But here's the bottom line. Regardless of what view you hold to, and again, you can hold to different views, here's the one truth I can stand before you and say all of us have agreement upon. We all stand condemned before a holy God, and we need the one mediator, Jesus, as the ransom. He's the only way of salvation. He's the one mediator, and his death on the cross is powerful to save. And so, no matter where you are today, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, place your faith in Jesus, rest in Jesus. He's powerful to save you. Are you a sinner? Then confess your sin. Believe in Jesus. Cast yourself at his mercy. Come to Christ. Call upon him to be saved. Don't worry so much about whether you're elected or whether Jesus died for you. The main thing is Jesus stands before you today, ready, willing, and able to save all who would come to him in repentance and faith. If you come to Jesus today in repentance and faith, he never has turned away anyone who's come to him in repentance and faith. So if you come to Jesus today in repentance and faith, he will not turn you away. He will receive you to himself. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, let's be thankful for the finished work of Christ on the cross. That his ransom paid for our sins. That he is the one mediator. We worship him for his ransom on the cross. And so let us receive his grace as we commune with him at the Lord's table this morning. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. It's been a difficult passage with a lot of controversy. And Lord, I don't want people to lose the forest for the trees this morning. I know we have to deal with text and their context and, and try to understand them. But Lord Jesus, the one thing we need to understand is you're the one mediator. And you gave your life as a ransom. And our only hope is in you. 
And so, Lord Jesus, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering your death, we're celebrating your death, but at the same time, we're receiving grace, sustaining grace, because you love us and you minister to us and you're interceding for us now in heaven. We don't know why you chose to come and die on the cross for us. It was an act of sheer love and mercy and grace, and we're so thankful, Jesus, that you did die for us. We're so thankful that we are your people. We're your children. Help us to never be elitist. Help us never to be prideful. Help us to always be humble. Help us to always be thankful. Help us to always be joyful. And, Lord, help us never to keep this to ourselves but to share it with the lost and dying world that needs to know that there is one mediator and there is one way and there is one hope and it's only through you, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to celebrate your supper this morning with joy in our hearts because you cried out, it is finished on the cross. We love you, Jesus, and we honor you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.